Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everybody, welcome along to the show. Today's a bit unusual as it's the audio from a Tech Week event which happened recently at Perryfield Lawyers and the topic was really looking at the idea of tech for good. How could we use technology as a force for good? And we have some great insights and contributions from Tim Jones, Georgia Robertson, John Ascroft, Dave Lane, and Menno Finlay-Smiths, as well as, I think there was about 30 people in the room, and they asked lots of great questions as well. So my role in it was basically to act as a facilitator and to help the questions um, come from the audience and then to engage with the panelists. So I'm not going to waste much more time. We're just going to get straight into it as it's quite a long episode. But if you do enjoy this, then consider checking out some of the more than 100 other episodes that are in the back catalog. Some of them are like this, sort of live events that I've recorded the audio from, but mainly it's about interviews with people and trying to get to the bottom of why they do what they do. And from this panel, I've actually interviewed Georgia Robertson, Dave Lane, and Tim Jones. And Tim Jones has been on twice on the podcast. So if you enjoy what they have to say, then go in the back catalog and you can hear their whole life story. And in the show notes, I'll put links to each of those episodes. Right, let's get into this panel session about tech for good. And introducing it is Chris Morrison from Perry Field. Let me say uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris Morrison. I'm one of Stephen's partners here at Perry Field. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you uh, along in, the, in our uh, boardroom this morning. And uh, Perryfield, as a firm, we have um, an interest both in the tech space uh, and in um, social enterprise charity. We work with a lot of charities and not-for-profits ourselves. Uh, and so seeing those two things come together makes a lot of sense for us. Uh, so I, I uh, hope you find the event useful today. Um, enjoy the speakers. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're glad to have you here. So thanks for coming. Thank you, Chris. Alright, so, Kira Kotoko Stephen Toko Ingwa no Ota Tahiao. My name is Stephen Mo, and despite my accent, I actually grew up here in Christchurch, so always be careful of assumptions when you hear accents. Um, but it's great to have you here, it's a real pleasure, and I love the size of this group because I think we're going to get a lot of good discussions going. Um, so, I'm a partner here at Perry Field, and I do a lot of work in the area of social enterprise and the idea of profit and purpose combining. Um, and what we've lined up today is this wonderful <coughs> panel of speakers who each bring a different perspective. And the topic that we're really interested in is this idea of tech for good. What does that actually look like? What shape could that take? Um, and so what we're going to hear from them is each of them have been asked to tell us a little bit about themselves, which organization they're representing. Some of them have multiple hats so they'll have to take them on and off. <laughs> um, but just a little bit about their company or their entity structures and how that flows into their um, desires to give back or to do good. Um, so that's that will be what we're doing. And then once the, each of them has spoken for a few minutes, we'll then open it up for questions and discussion. Um, and we want it to be as interactive as possible. And we want you to go away feeling challenged by the ideas that were presented today. Um, before we get into that, um, can I just get, uh, just for us to know, like, how many of you come from what I guess you'd call tech companies? Are there any of those in the room? 
Okay, cool, so about half. And how many are just interested in this topic of tech for good? Great, that's good. <laughs> um, and yeah, because I think it's good to know sort of where we're coming from and um, what's brought us or what's led us to be here. Um, for me personally, uh, I got involved in the idea of social enterprise about two and a half years ago. Um, I put this little book out about social enterprise and through that it's been a, like a door to open up an understanding that maybe business and purpose could be combined in a new way. And the more people I talk with, the more I hear that idea resonating that the old paradigm of the way that we've done business, which was how much returns can go to our shareholders, that that's not what it's gonna be like in the future, that we're actually moving to a new paradigm. In the old paradigm, if you wanted to do good, you would set up a charity. If you wanted to make money, you would set up a company. And then the new paradigm, it's moving, hi, bud. In the new paradigm, we're moving towards this idea that you can actually combine profit and purpose. Um, so what we'll do is um, hand over, and we'll just, I think we'll just go along the line, starting with Tim, and we'll hear um, about people's backgrounds and perspectives on this topic, and then we'll open up for some good discussions. Um, the other thing is I'm recording this audio session, so if anybody doesn't want their voice recorded, then just let me know and I'll cut it out. But I've been doing a podcast called Seeds, so there's a card on your um, chair and I'm up to 104 episodes now. So this sort of content is exactly in line with what I'm doing with the podcast. So um, that's the aim. So if I could hand over to Tim and just give us a little bit of background and um, we'll go along the line. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, kia ora, kia ora everyone. I'm Tim Jones. Um, I'm one of the people who definitely wears multiple hats. Um, so I'm currently doing work with a cool little, we call ourselves an organisation of impact, um, Kilmarnock Enterprises. Um, you might formally know us as a charity, but we're kind of in one of these better grey zone social enterprise organisations. Um, I have my own consulting company called Grow Good, which is a certified B Corporation. Hands up who's heard of what B or heard of B Corporations. I know. Excellent, most of the room. Um, and I'm also the B Corporation Ambassador for New Zealand, so engaging at the minute primarily trying to get hold of big business and help get them to understand how this whole profit and purpose matrix, how you can kind of pull it together and actually create some really, really cool stuff. Um, I guess I kind of fell into this world of business for good. For me, it was post-earthquake, post-birth of my daughter, our daughter, um, in 2012, and I had a massive subconscious awakening. I'd, I'd been very much working in business for money, and I thought that was really cool, and just make as much money as you can. Um, but yeah, I had this kind of really quick awakening and just sort of realised that actually it's all quite meaningless and pointless, just trying to chase more money for for no real personal gain, um, but when you start looking at the collateral damage that trying to make that money makes. So yeah, I've been, since 2012, I've been on a, what felt like to begin with a one-man crusade or a one-person crusade to try and bring good into business, but over the last few years, there's certainly some familiar faces in the room who are, I guess, you know, bringing that, that story to life, and, and um, yeah, so that's kind of a bit about me. Brilliant. Kia ora everyone, my name's Georgia Robertson. <coughs> I am the CEO of a tech charity called Humanitics. So we're an events ticketing platform and we 
distribute 100% of our profits into education charities here in New Zealand. So we were founded out of the idea of addressing global inequality and marrying technology and charity together. Um, we'd noticed that the charity sector is really far behind in terms of technology, but that tech presents a really exciting opportunity for charities to leverage scale in terms of the impact and good that they're trying to achieve. So we have a SaaS model, we have an online ticketing platform, um, event organisers can sign up to the platform and create, host and manage events and then through all of the profits that we make in booking fees through our sales, um, that's what gets distributed into charities. So it's really exciting. We've um, distributed about $250,000 across Australasia um, to charities now. So it's really exciting to be a part of and um, I'm from Christchurch as well. Originally I've spent the last three years being a corporate lawyer at Duncan Cotterill and so that was the background that personally I came out of into technology so it's been um, sort of the start of this year that I've, I've made that move and it's been a really exciting one for me as well um, and having that that blend of social enterprise and how you can leverage um, the potential of technology to create impact is what really excites me and pioneering what that looks like in terms of our business case is is what I'm most driven by. Hi uh, I'm John Ascroft. I, uh work for Jade Software, which has uh, been around in Christchurch for quite a long time. Um, we are, of course, a, a corporate entity, so we are a for-profit organisation. Um, but it's interesting because when you look at profit and how what you do with that, and it's something we've been talking about a lot internally, um, ignoring society for a moment, then, then we have three choices we can do with a profit. We can either give it back to our shareholders, and at the moment we have one shareholder which is actually a UK based mutual building society. So Jade Software, although effectively we're a New Zealand and Christchurch based company, is actually technically owned by UK Building Society, which itself is a mutual owned by its um, depositors, which is kind of interesting in its own way because they themselves within the UK have quite a a caring attitude to what they do because they are representing their depositors and they have that original root back of helping people to get into housing. Um, we can give the money back to that shareholder, we can use it to increase and pay our staff and do. We thirdly we can use it to grow the company and do more interesting things and so we've been looking at that sort of balance of what you do with the money. Um, and we're fortunate to have money to do stuff with. I think there's a sort of fairness thing and there's also a, it is a truly a balancing act of trying to decide whether you want, we want to be able to keep the company going so we need to invest in the future when you're 40 years old as a technology company, you have to have kept adapting. Um, there's nothing the same as when we first started. Uh, at the moment we're around 250 staff um, rounding to the nearest sort of five million, we, we're about 40 million in revenue but we pay about 30 million of that out in salaries. So a large amount of employment in, in, and mainly in Christchurch. And uh, as a, a net exporter we, we sell at the moment around 50% of our business overseas but obviously most of that money comes back to New Zealand and gets fed back into the local economy. Uh, one of the things that raises interesting questions is like donations and sponsorship. So my personal view is that that's 
something that's that appropriate for a business to do too much of that that's like spending other people's money and if you think of for example a government department we wouldn't expect them to be doing sponsorship to any large degree because it's other people's money and we're in much the same boat but that doesn't mean we're not interested in, in working with organisations where there's an alignment. And the final thing I wanted to mention was that um, one of the products we're, we're currently, one of our major products is anti-money laundering and it's really exciting for us to be doing something that's actually making a difference and we know that within New Zealand about 30% of the AML reports that go um, to the enforcement agencies actually end up attached to a case and you see pictures of big uh, black utes and Harley Davidsons being loaded onto car transporters and taken away from people and in some, a lot of those cases it's the anti-money laundering that are triggering that and providing the, the first insights into criminal activity and those people that are a plague on society and we're helping to detect them and, and shut them away. So that's something we're very proud of. Morning all, I'm Dave Lane. Um, I think I was billed on the original um, uh, advertising for this session as the president of the Open Source Society, which is one of, one of the hats I wear. So I'm obviously an open source, free and open source software exponent. Um, but I thought it might actually be more interesting to talk about what I'm doing for a day job these days, which is um, working for a charitable foundation that's based uh, in Dunedin. And we have a global mission. We are trying to provide openly uh, what's something called open educational resource-based higher education for the globe. So it's a reasonably modest goal. But we are, um, we are, we are currently making some very good progress in that mission, um, having had uh, some of our initial courses um, used by or taken by thousands of people at this stage. Um, and we are building our entire, so, so everything that we're building is, is being created using open source software so that anyone can recreate it. In fact, we provide instructions on how others in the world can recreate what we're doing because we want them to, ideally it would be great if they copied us. Um, we also have a network of 35 plus um, higher education institutions around the world who are partners. So we are a charitable foundation whose sole shareholder at the moment is the Otago Polytech. Um, we're a very lean organization. There are two staff, um, of which I'm one. I'm the open source technologist. That's my role. And my colleague is the uh, brains behind the operation. He's the one who's sorted out all of the uh, rigorous academic um, transfer procedures that allow people who go through our courses to actually gain formal academic credit from one of or more of the uh, 35 university partners from around the world. Um, and so just to give you an idea of the scale of our operation, um, the first course that we ran, which is called Learning in a Digital Age, which we think is something that everyone should be taking everywhere in the world. Um, some of you might be interested in taking it. It's, there's no cost to, to, there are no costs associated with taking it. The only cost in any part of our s service <coughs> is if people want to uh, be assessed for their mastery of whatever the content of a course is, and then they pay a nominal cost recovery based fee to one of our partners, and then they actually get formal academic credit. We're actually also, we've just launched our first um, exit credential, which is a one-year degree, 
um, which is awarded by three of our partners, um, which I can, I'll tell you about later if you're interested. Um, and uh, eventually we hope to have a full undergraduate curriculum and a full um, potentially postgraduate uh, curriculum as well. Um, I, I was very lucky to be able to take part in this organization having sold my own technology company, which was a 100% open source software company. Uh, and I wanted to get back on the, on the tools, so to speak. So I've been very lucky to be able to find something that's so well aligned with my own values and has the opportunity to do what I see as being one of the few things that we can do in a life that is guaranteed to have a good impact, which is to help people reach their educational potential, particularly women. And we've been absolutely delighted to see that on our very first course, we had 1,500 people take part. They represented 80 countries. Um, and the majority of them, the slight majority of them were women. So um, yeah, it's really exciting uh, to see this potential. And we're doing this all with an IT budget of less than $10,000 a year. And we're fully funded, we're fully funded by our member, um, our, our uh, partner member subscriptions or membership fees and a small grant from the Hewlett Foundation. I'm uh, Menno Finlay-Smits. I'm a technical lead at the Cacophony Project and uh, we're bringing uh, digital technology to the problem of uh, introduced predators in New Zealand that are having a bad impact on uh, New Zealand's native bird populations, so, yeah, rats, possums, stoats, all that kind of thing. I won't go too much into the technology, um, that's not what we're talking about today, but um, yeah, we're a, a registered charity, uh, so all our funding so far has come from wealthy New Zealanders, so um, because it's an issue that people are very interested in in New Zealand, um, there's, there's no shortage of people who are willing to support us and to get the problem solved. Um, and recently we've also started getting funding from the government via the Predator Free 2050 organisation. Um, we are all about solving the problem, so we're not about making money, um, and that's why we're a charity. Um, we're also completely open source, so all the hardware and software we develop is free for anyone to contribute to. <coughs> we have a, a, an ever-growing community of regular contributors, which is fantastic. Um, and also, uh, there people can take what we've done, turn it into products, or deploy it in different ways, use it in other countries for similar problems. Um, and we will support people to do that. Um, being a structured like this has been pretty helpful for us. It means that we, we don't have to be focused on, uh, as long as there's enough you know, donations and coming in, uh, we, we can just focus on the problems. We'd have to worry about investors and shareholders and that kind of thing. Um, we can be very R&D focused. Uh, it also means that people are much more willing to help us. If you're a, if you're a company that's focused on profit, people are less likely to want to volunteer their time to come and help you um, with what you're doing, but when you're a charity and you're not about money, people, um, yeah, we've had free advice from, you know, people who do hardware development, people who do electronics, people who do software developers, lawyers, um, bookkeeping, all sorts of stuff. It, it, you know, we've been very you know, lucky in that way because it's, um, and I think a lot of that comes from the, the way we're structured. Um, despite that, we, we are also starting to explore commercial options and um, there's a company that's being started right now uh, which is separate from the, um, the non-profit entity that uh, is taking what the technologies we're developing and, and turning them into products that for sale. It's, um, we 
firstly, it's 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 a way of show. It, it it's been done by different people, uh, but we are working very closely with them, and it's it's partly there to show that there are commercial opportunities in this space, and we just want to start that ball ball rolling by showing it's possible, and we're quite happy for other companies to spring up to to take what we've done and, and maybe do different products. Uh, and it's also um, some of the profits from that company will be fed back into the non-profit entity to kind of give us another revenue stream to, to keep the keep everything going. Um, we're in a pretty good space now, and things are moving <coughs> rather well. And uh, yeah, <coughs> um, that's, that's where we're at at the moment. Great. Well, as you can tell, we've got a lot of experience here on our panel, which is wonderful. <coughs> um, just before we open it up to questions. I'm just curious because it, it looks like several of you have chosen the charitable model and I think we probably would identify with some of the things you said that there are positives with charity, that people have certain assumptions about it. Um, just so we can unpack it further, what in your experiences have been the negatives or the downsides or the challenges from being a charity that's also involved in doing business? And you want to answer that? I can definitely jump on that one with the... So Kilmarnock Enterprises used to be based a little bit further down the road here, and the shop front very much looked like a charity. It looked like you expected a couple of nice old ladies to give you a cup of tea and say, it'll be all right, dear. Yes, you can maybe buy some old clothes. Mm -hmm. that, that was very much the, the um, persona that we gave. And when you're trying to talk to Air New Zealand and foodstuffs, they look at that and just go, well, you're not a serious commercial entity. You know, we'll, we'll give you a grant, we'll give you a donation, but we're not going to give you business. Commodics mm -hmm. now in a purpose-built $12 million building in, in Wigram, and the, the, the best description I can give you is um, there's a company called Croxley, and they, they're mainly known for notebooks and things like that, but they also have a printer recycling scheme. And the guy from Croxley um, had an introduction to him from Rico, who are part of their printer recovery program, mm -hmm. and he turned up and he walked into the main building and he just went, wow. He said, and he literally said, I was expecting two guys in a shed, sharing a hammer, smashing up whole TVs. <laughs> this is not that. And I'm like, no, you wait till you come and see our purpose-built e-waste recycling facility. And on the back of that, he, he and we, you know, we're ISO 9001, he was like, the, the contract's yours. I'm not even gonna, I don't need to see anything else. And I think that, mm -hmm. that's a really big thing that charity has to bump up against in, in my experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's about the assumptions that people make when you say you're a charity. Exactly that. You're, you're a bunch of do-gooders that you don't understand business. Yeah. And you, you, you're just throwing money down a hole here to try and fix a problem. Mm. Whereas, you know, we're, we're business, we understand how the economy and this, all this amazing stuff works. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we know what's best. Mm. Yeah. No, that's good. Well, we might just go along the line if that's okay. Yeah, Georgia, sure. have you got some thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting to add to that idea around um, perceptions that charity means either compromising on product or paying a higher premium um, on cost and that's certainly been something that is important to dispel in the sense that for us um, like our, our the way we set up as a charity was very deliberate we set up um, not to have any shareholders very deliberately because we knew that if we had private shareholders we would always have a tension that we had to negotiate between delivering returns to our shareholders um, and the different time frames that that looks like versus achieving the impact objectives that we're set up fundamentally to do. Um, a lot of us came from backgrounds, professional backgrounds and were dissatisfied with our ability to realise those goals of actually achieving some change in the world um, at a much bigger scale and so 
having no shareholders means that essentially our shareholders are the charities that we deliver our impact to. They're the people who receive the benefits of the charities that we partner with. So Room to Read, who fund education projects for girls in some of the most disadvantaged countries in the world. Um, for 50 New Zealand dollars, we can put a girl through school for a year. Um, in New Zealand, we've got Kids Can, we've got um, a bunch in Australia as well, different charities. And so that is where we have our focus in terms of who we're doing business for. We're doing business for them and to create that impact and a scale. And that's the beauty of technology in that sector. And so for us, we are every day going up against some of the biggest companies in the world. Our competitors are Eventbrite and Ticketek and Dash Tickets, all, all sorts of different ticketing companies. And it's a really interesting industry to be operating in because it's this multi-billion dollar industry worldwide that people really resent because it lacks transparency um, and people pay lots of money in booking fees um, and don't understand where that cost comes from and all of our competitors are distributing that money to private shareholders of Eventbrite, a publicly listed company to compare with us who um, are a charity and so for us what that means is it's really important that our product is the best ticketing company, has the best user experience um, and offers a really competitive cost. So that is what we have developed as our offering. So that's been really powerful for us as a charity doing business and competing in this market because it gives event organisers a commercially sound reason to switch to us and also increasing transparency. So for us, we're tech leading um, and that's what we do. Um, our overarching goal is really ambitious in terms of the change we want to create and see in the world and that's what drives us and keeps us hungry for it. Um, but first and foremost, we are striving to be the best technology ticketing platform in the market. And it's really exciting because that's what we're starting to prove um, through the last four years of operating. So it's, it's a really interesting tension. And I think the other thing to add to that in terms of the challenges of marrying tech and charity um, and just the charitable and social enterprise model itself is, is the funding and, and how you fund that. We um, are on track to be self-sustainable within four or five years and like any other startup business we um, need seed capital um, but because we're structured in this way to achieve really specific outcomes um, in terms of the options for funding that's limiting so we by virtue of having charitable status can apply for grants um, we can and we can be in that space as well um, but overall what we're driving is this really novel approach to impact investment and and there's lots of different ways that you can conceive of impact investment if it's a blended way in the ideology that it's partially equity, partially social or governance or environmental outcomes that you're achieving as a business. Um, but what we're driving is this really exciting case of how do you multiply your impact through investment? How do you turn investment funding um, into social impact? So that's what we've been doing with some of our backers, Google and Atlassian, and they see us as the best Return, social return on their invested capital in the market that they can get and we're, we're working with um, BCG at the moment and measuring what that looks like so mm. it's certainly not without challenges um, on lots of fronts in terms of how we operate but that's the reality that we that we work with and, and that's unique to having the blended business and charity model um, it, it adds a whole nother dimension to, you, to your business mm. but I think that's the crux of it, right, is looking at it and saying, okay, well, actually, first and foremost, we operate like a business and we have this charitable aspect. We're not a business who is looking at what good they can create as a corollary of the money that they make. It's fundamentally, that's what we're set up to do um, and why we do what we do. 
but we still operate um, as a really commercially sound competitive organisation mm. in order to be able to achieve that. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, because it kind of opens up opportunities. So Google's huge, obviously. Atlassian's yeah. huge, yeah. particularly Australia, but growing. <coughs> and I imagine for them, it was that social change element, right? That it's actually giving back to charities that was a big driver for them supporting. But yeah. on the flip side, when you go to a private investor and say, would you like to invest in us? You can't offer the same returns yeah. as a normal um, business. Yeah, yeah, correct. It's, well, returns if, if returns are financial returns yeah. because that's not what we're set up yeah. for. I mean, we're, n we're not totally married to that idea. Um, we will take reference to achieve whatever that, you know whatever impact it is. If we can't achieve our impact in the way that we're set up, we will be flexible and with a long-term view. But so far, um, the market response that we've had from investors and from um, event organisers and across the social impact and ticketing industry hasn't been that that's necessary. Mm. So that's really exciting to have the support of, of the likes of Atlassian and Google who do see that value and that, that multiplier effect to achieve that scale. Mm. All right. Well, we'll move along the line. John, do you have any reflections? I know you're different structures. <laughs> different so. structure. Um, <laughs> just a couple of comments, and, and they're entirely um, from not within the charity sector. Firstly, I think when I think about charities, I always think that they tend to have a more day-to-day uh, -day existence mm -hmm. and hand-to-mouth existence because they don't have the capital, generally have capital reserves mm -hmm. and shareholders to fund things like expansion. Mm -hmm. So even if it's a trading charity that can generate surpluses, it's still, I think, more difficult to do some things um, than it is with a traditional corporate structure. Um, my other comment would simply be, you know, with thinking about Kilmarnock, for example, that I can easily imagine that charities that spent money on facilities could also have you know things like why they're spending all their money on buildings mm. or you've got to always do that balancing act between what you seem to be spending on yourself and what you seem to be giving to constituents even if the, the spending on yourself is justified mm. and and that goes to you know as you scale being able to hire people because then you're starting to have to hire on a commercial basis and mm. it just it's, it is hard work I mean. mm. yeah. yeah that's good for you, Dave? Well, um, our foundation, our charitable foundation, has had an interesting um, effect, which is that you, you've probably all heard about various online learning platforms that are profit motivated and, and investor funded and so on, and they market the heck out of themselves, and everybody's heard of them. We, we tend to fly below the radar quite a lot um, because we don't market, because we run on a, a very lean model, as I explained, with only two staff. Um, but we, um, we found that that being underestimated has been very advantageous because the approach that we are developing, whereas it's only you know, addressing potentially the needs of a thousand or thousands of, of learners now, we can scale based on the model that we've built to millions of learners in a year. And the thing is that our costs might go from $10,000 a year, which is our, our current IT budget, to 50000 a year mm -hmm. to address a million learners. So we have a very, very attractive um, scaling proposition. What's more, um, because we are running <coughs> such a lean organization, we are actually completely funded by our members who are, are, are providing just from their point of view a public, well in some cases public good, but also they're, they're members of our, of our network of, of, of higher education institutions because they want to be at the forefront of what we're doing. 
And um, for them, their, their con contribution to us is literally a few thousand dollars a year each. So it's, it's rounding errors in their, in their departmental budgets. So from their perspective, it's actually just, just an interesting thing to be involved in. Mm. And we have the potential to completely um, upend the expectation of people who are learning around the world. And we're not focused on the rich markets, we're focused on all the markets. Right. And we're not focused on people who are gonna be the ones that bring in big money and has, ha, you know, have, have great networks and can refer people. We're, we're focusing on everyone. And, um, and so that makes it a lot easier, well, aside from the fact that we all feel really good about what we're doing, mm. um, it makes it much easier for us to uh, engage other partners who simply help to provide us with more resources that we can apply very rapidly to increasing um, what we're doing. The biggest downside of being a charitable foundation is that we have one shareholder, and with the amalgamation uh, being threatened currently in New Zealand of the polytechnics, um, <coughs> We've had a bit of a existential um, angst, uh, but as it turns out, um, we decided rather than being defensive to be a little bit to go on the offensive, and we may actually have, um, well, time will tell, but we may actually have uh, not only um, preserved our ability to act in the way that we have been acting, but potentially amplified it substantially as well. So. Mm -hmm watch this space. <laughs> well, the fascinating thing, just picking up on one thing you said, is the scalability mm. of what, what probably many of our businesses are involved in today, yep. that you can actually develop something here in New Zealand that could be accessed and used around the world. Yep. When you go back 20, 30 years, it just wasn't that way, was it? So, yep. it's, uh, yeah, it's so a it's one of the few This is quite interesting. Sorry, this is one of the few situations where I've seen um, kind of digital technology being, uh, and, and the, its ability to scale exponentially being used for pure good rather than for pure profit. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, okay. yeah. Did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I can certainly echo some of the things we're hearing from the other panelists. It's, it's when you're a charity, it, it's harder to be taken seriously mm -hmm. at first, and you have to work harder to explain yourself to somebody who might be more used to dealing with a, a corporation or you know, some other business. Um, uh, also, I think there's a bit of a financial um, burden in terms of being more careful about where you're spending your money and and um, no boozy lunches, that kind of thing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> when people have given you money for a particular purpose with nothing expected apart from that you're going to help right. them you know, do the thing that you said you were going to do, you, you have to be a bit, a bit more careful about how you're spending money. Um, that said, I mean, we're, we're a charity, but we're not the kind of charity that takes, you know, gets $10 there, $20 there. The, the, the people who have been giving us money have been very generous and mm. we're talking significant sums of money. So it hasn't been that day-to-day -day worrying about are we going to have enough money to make mm. it through the week kind of thing. Uh, it's, mm. We're not operating at that level. Um, also, I think being a charity does uh, mean that some sort of development grants and things in New Zealand aren't open to you. They're, they're, they're focused on business. Yeah. Um, like Callahan, that's very business focused. <coughs> um, okay. There's certainly things we missed there, but overall, I think the, the structure has worked out net positive for us. Mm. Um, there's certainly brought a lot of benefits. Mm. That's great. Well, I want to open it up to the panel, uh, to the rest of the room, to ask questions of the panel. Um, but before that, we do that, I know I'm going to forget to mention this if I don't say it now. But this is a report called "Structuring for Impact: Evolving Legal Structures for Business in New Zealand." I don't know, have any of you heard of Akina Foundation? 
Um, so Acne Foundation put this out about three weeks ago, and it's available for free download if you just look up Akina. Um, and I was involved in it, and it took us about nine months to write this thing. So I really am hoping other people can absorb what we're saying. But basically, it's talking here about the issues that you're talking about, which is why it's relevant, saying um, generally charities, people are acting from the heart, and they're doing things for reasons of the heart, you know, wanting to fulfill a charitable purpose. And in business, people often act from the mind. How much money can I make? How much profits? And this is saying, is there a way forward where we could actually have a structure that sits between charities and business and call them impact enterprises and actually adopt the best bits of charity, the best bits of business and have a new structure? So if you're interested, if that resonates at all, then this is quite a long report. But the executive summary does everything, so just read that. <laughs> um, yeah, but that, that's really recent, and it's just it's gone to government now for them to look at, and we'll see what happens. But it's quite an exciting space, which touches on everything that we've been talking about. So um, I'd like to open up for questions. Has anybody got a burning question? Yep. Yeah, um, probably mainly for Dave and you know, I'll a few years ago, I was quite interested in developing a, um, a robotic locomotion system. Then all these thoughts sort of came into my mind about how, you know, probably end up being used mainly on battlefields for <laughs> <laughs> um, military uses. And, I, and I had, then I had this idea of having a, um, a license that sort of forbid particular uses, you know. And then, um, and then I had another idea that you could actually have a, like a an open source license with a commercial element where um, the commercial side would fund some kind of thing like monitoring autonomous weapon systems or something like that. Um, and then, so that's basically just against the background of uh, stuff that's happening lately with Huawei opening up their source code and um, the uh, 737 MAX source code being inspected by the UK and so forth. There's, there's quite a strong argument for some critical software to be transparent so that it can be examined by third parties to see if it's sort of up to the job. So I'm sort of, a, with all that stuff sort of mixed in, I'm just wondering what the scope is for sort of a, you know, specifically socialist sort of model of source code that can be, you know, owned by everybody and make money but fund out of profits, fund sort of the kind of things you guys are doing. Dave, do you mind answering yeah, well, um, <laughs> I can tell you that I've lived for the last 25 years purely on open source software without any closed source at all. I, I have personal <coughs> beliefs about things which I've written about to a, certain, a large extent about the fact that I think closed source software is, is on the verge of being unethical. Um, and I can explain that this, if people want to know, but I, I won't mention that here. But um, I, uh, I think that people have tried the idea of licenses which um, dictate the kind of purposes for which you can use code and, and generally those have been shot down <laughs> for the simple fact that it's almost, it's almost impossible to police them and the kind of organizations that set those conditions haven't got enough resources to make good on following through with their, um, you know, using the mechanisms that are available to them to actually enforce those they, they generally can't afford to. So it's kind of uh, a difficult one. I, I do have pangs of um, 
well, I find it there are challenging aspects to the way open source software is being used, especially in the military, for example, and I have no time for it at all. But by the same token, it is within the realms of the licenses that we currently have. And um, I'd rather that the code be open than be closed um, because it gives people at least a chance to work out. Uh, Do you see any scope for generating um, funds for something like a Cacophony project from a kind of a commercial licensing option in an open source code? Or? Well, it's. It's always easier if, like in our situation, there's a lot of hardware that goes with what we're doing with the software. So as soon as you've got that, it's often quite easy to make a, a commercial offering because it's most people don't want to go and build their own hardware. So um, you, people can see the software that's running on the hardware and that's open and the hardware designs are open, but just out of convenience and um, there's this natural barrier there which means that people would be willing to pay. Um, same for cloud-hosted things. You can have this, the code for that completely open, but it's just way less, you know, people don't have the expertise or just don't want to bother with running their own infrastructure in the cloud, so you can make a commercial offering that way as well. It limits the, it limits the scope of, of profit you can gain because you can't exploit a system like that beyond what people think is a fair price, mm. whereas in a proprietary world you can, you can exploit the user and, and generally most proprietary systems do exploit it. Yeah, I guess I was saying that against the background of sort of increasing dissatisfaction with low source software and sort of credible services. Yeah. Just jumping on that, I spent 10 years selling medical devices and, and there's a really cool documentary on Netflix called The Bleeding Edge which summarises the whole industry and how it works and very, very closed source environment. So medical device company will invent the widget that will help fix this, this human they will then patent like a thousand different variations of the same product to make sure that no other competitor can come close to the technology that they've got. They then sit on that technology for the 20 odd years that the patent's active for, and then they launch the next version as the upgrade. And it came back to something that was kind of mentioned, I think sort of from the panel was, you know, I think it was George, you know, what's your real competition? Is your real competition making more money than the company down the road? Or is the competition fixing more people more effectively? And I think when you look at what you're, what you're wanting to achieve, that creates the focus on how you should then deliver it and what's going to work best. I'm sure a lawyer doesn't want to hear that, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the lawyer. <laughs> Do we have any other questions from there? Yeah. George, I was just wondering about your funding system. I was sure. interested in saying what you were saying about being funded by Google and what did they want to return. Yeah, yeah, sure. How do you, yeah. How, how, how did we get that and what does no, it look like? What is your funding situation? What is our structure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. So, um, yeah, so we, the way that we started as an organisation was uh, our co-founders bootstrapped it for a year. Um, mm -hmm. One of them quit his job first. He had a background in product management, so it made sense for him to, to do that and work on it first. And the other co-founder stayed in his job and the two of them shared a salary for a year um, while they worked on it in weekends and, and night times of that first year and really experienced a lot of challenges and from a funding perspective to um, socialise the understanding of what, what they were trying to achieve. And also at that point we were running an MVP product, we were still testing, so it was very early stage. And um, from there we went through a process of engaging with a lot of um, 
philanthropists and individuals who were excited by the model. Um, and so sort of a consortium of those right. individuals. Private funders. Yeah, private yeah. funders initially were where we got our mm -hmm. first funding. Um, most of it were, um, the people who were involved in the organisation sure. at that stage were still not um, salaried, they were volunteering. Um, and then we got to the point where once we launched the um, tech that we currently have, um, we were working with Atlassian um, on a pro bono basis and they were doing our penetration testing and the assurance around what our okay, platform so did. Yeah, a lot of in-kind support from them. And then through that we just develop, we developed a relationship with them, like some of the world's best software developers, and they said, hang on, like actually with your model I can see this. And they have a foundation who's very active and they do um, significant due diligence. They're an extremely generous company and they were really excited by the model <coughs> so for every ticket that we sell we're earning revenue and of that revenue the profit margin is what's distributed to charity so they said this is really exciting so they decided to invest with us rather than investing directly in the education charities that they had done right, diligence so on. foundation and yeah so they're through their foundation directly so we have a structure of sales targets that we meet with them in order to make sure that we are returning their social impact that we say we are going to achieve um, so that's our business structure and then with Google what we did, this was a process of applying for um, grants and, and the Google Impact Challenge is um, a program that runs each year. Mm. Um, there's four recipients of that funding and you get in-kind support as well as funding. So we won a million dollars of funding from mm. Google and we have access, which is really exciting, to a lot of the expertise from our customer experience and UX. We run a lot of workshops with mm. them. So our development team have a lot of support from Atlassian and journalist and commercial team. Mm a lot from Google but from a funding perspective that's how we fund it and, and for funding growth um, it was an interesting <coughs> point that was mentioned around, yeah, around you know, how do you scale and how do you fund that kind of mm -hmm. growth and if you pair us back we're self-funding across Australasia um, but that's not accounting for the growth that we want to achieve and the development and scale that we're trying to um, unlock and particularly looking at new market segments and hiring in order to bolster sales into those markets. So looking at external funding for that as well, but a lot of it is philanthropic. In New Zealand, we were really lucky. Um, the Arkina Foundation are extremely generous and we last year were the one of the recipients of the Investment Readiness Grant. So that seeded our incorporation, so things like our um, our legal and, and, and sure. bookkeeping um, and we're going through the similar process yeah. that we have. Yeah. So it's interesting that you use the word investment when you're applying for Correct. foundations. So this is where it's interesting to use that, that terminology yeah. in the sense. Absolutely. Um, just, and what are their requirements in terms of your social impact reporting? Like, are, are they you know, are they just saying, okay, just give us so many sales, or what do they want yeah. from you, and how much time is it taking on your end? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one. I guess we've got the regulatory overlay of what we report on generally sure. um, as an organisation. So we've mm -hmm. got charities frameworks across Australia and New Zealand. We've got um, normal standards of reporting as, as a business and to our board and that level of transparency with our funders. Um, with, with each of them, we have different levels. So the Arkina Investment Readiness Grant was specifically to get us into a position in New Zealand where we could go to market and start mm -hmm. raising the philanthropic investment that we wanted. And the reason I use the term investment as opposed to donation is because it is tagged to outcomes. So investors have the option to 
collaboratively choose where our impact goes. So they accrue rights in terms of where our distributions go. And they, like you say, they have rights to discuss how our sales are going and looking at the way that we're strategically modelling our business. So it's a collaborative approach in that sense. So that's why it's not a pure donation with those investors because it's tagged to social outcomes. But um, correct, it's interesting the word investment and impact investment and mm-hmm. venture philanthropy, like throwing around all these different terms of, of mm-hmm. what that looks like. It's, it's a really new space mm-hmm. to be operating in. And um, the interesting thing as well is like we've talked about the impact and how do you measure it. Because lots of the measures that, that you're talking about, you know, <coughs> the AML software, mm. and that that mm. is used to help catch criminals, like, mm. that's really hard to measure, right, like, mm. in terms of what's the outcome here. Um, I, yeah. in, I was in Wellington on Thursday and Friday at the Philanthropy Summit 2019, which was bringing together basically 500 philanthropy organizations, so the community trusts like Rata Foundation, mm-hmm. as well as private foundations like Todd Foundation, Tendall Foundation, mm-hmm. and they were all getting together to talk about what do we invest, uh, w- using that terminology, yeah. what do we invest in as opposed to who do we give grants to? Yeah. And there was a lot of talk about we should stop talking about grants, we should talk about giving the money, mm-hmm. if we're actually giving it, mm-hmm. um, and just here's the money, as mm-hmm. opposed to investing actually wanting some form of return. Mm. And from, an, from a framework from <coughs> for good, right, it's what's mm-hmm. the cost of that money. So if it's a donation, you're giving away money for free. Um, versus if it is if it is this type of investment, you're, you get more bang for your buck mm. in the philanthropic sense. Um, to round off the point around our impact investment, it's been really interesting for us. We've embedded that into our platform by design. So we've made it really easy and it's a really important core part of our business that we can communicate easily what our impact is. So our platform itself reports in real time exactly what the impact is we're creating through our ticket sales. So every single event, it's tracking what the margin is of what is going to be donated to charity. So you can see in real time as your event sales go through, whether you've got $100 going to charity, $1,000 going to charity. And we can see that from our end, um, from custom date ranges to month down to the day to the hour of exactly what level of distribution we'll be making. So it feeds into our impact reporting really easily that we've designed that in. Well, that's mm-hmm. interesting because I think there's in the difference between outcome and impact, right? Like mm-hmm. $100 going to a certain charity doesn't mean um, a certain level of impact. And that's why I was mm-hmm. wondering about how yeah. I want you to report, do they want you to report on yeah. you know, money that goes towards something yeah. or are they actually wanting you to report on so many, uh, so many. Yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting. The space in terms of the relationships <coughs> that we have with our partners. That's why it's been really important for us to have partners like Atlassian, who are, who have a dedicated foundation, and they've done all the due diligence on impact and effective altruism. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the space where right. we're looking at. Yeah. We don't have the capacity at the moment as yes. a startup to to outlay that kind of resource into evaluating who is the most effective at creating impact with the dollar that we're giving them. So Mm -hmm. it's having these really close, amazing relationships with the likes of Atlassian who are doing that due diligence and Mm -hmm. they know that their chosen charity room to read, for example, they have that relationship and have done the diligence on what that impact looks like. So we can say, okay, great, we can rely on that. And that's that's how these things work, right? It's it's working collaboratively. 
And I've actually used the platform that you're talking about for yeah. ticketing that I've done. And you're right, you log in, and normally with another provider, you don't see what happens to the money mm. that goes to the fees. But yeah. with your one, it does say X number of dollars has gone to the reading room or whatever. Yeah. So it's using technology again to report back. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to hear from the other panelists on this idea of impact and how you report back on it. Manon, just with your situation, you know, you're developing technology still yeah. to reduce the predators, and it's still it's still growing, right? Like, it, it, it's always changing, it's morphing. Like, how do you report back to the people who have supported you in, like, in, in, on the impact? Now, this is not something that I have to do much directly, but I, uh, it, my understanding is it's fairly informal, mm -hmm. so it, it's just, Generally, it involves you know some sort of pitch to potential investors, and if they like the idea, they'll give us some money, and they might check in later and, and see how we're going, and, and that might lead to further donations. Um, different investors I know have different levels of interest in in how we're going mm -hmm. and, and what we've done uh, with the money they've given us, um, but it is quite informal. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in terms of our recent funding through Predator Free 2050, that is a lot more structured right. and um, we have specific goals that we've committed to and with, with timelines so mm -hmm. um, yeah, later this year we're due to hit some of those and we have to present back to them what we've done and what yeah. we've achieved with the money yeah. they've given us so that's yeah and um, we'll probably see more of that kind of thing happening now um, but yeah, certainly with the private invest the private donations it's it's been quite informal mm. and Tim just thinking about Kilmarnock you know that the outcomes or the impacts that you're having it it's beyond just a, we employ X number of people. Can you just talk us through some of the other impacts? Yep. So um, at Kermonic, we've aligned all our impact against five of the UN SDGs. And they've just changed, so please don't test me on which ones. <laughs> um, but for example, one of them will be, is around education. So <clears throat> we Kermonic basically provides meaningful work and education opportunities for people with intellectual disability. So if people um, in that sector, on average, about 25% unemployment rate and typically zero educational pass of any kind. So one, um, one thing that Michelle worked really hard a couple of years ago was the Kilmarnock Academy. And so you know, we now measure the impact of, of the academy, which is fully funded from the trading that we do on the shop floor. So we will measure the number of hours that are undertaken in the academy. We'll measure the scores on the, we have our own internal training program. Then we have an NZQA course we run in conjunction with Hagley. So we measure the number of attendees, the number of passes, the pass rate. We actually got to the point last year where we were measuring so much, we had to pull it back because it was just really hard for every department head to keep on track of all these different measurements. We had this massive spreadsheet. Um, and so we've really just paired it back and gone, you know, and just, I guess, what Book was talking about, you know, actually what does make the difference and what's, you know, what's the lever that you can pull or what's mm -hmm. the lever that, that you're pulling and what output is that creating and being really aware. So, you know, for us, we, you'd probably argue, well, count the number of hours in the academy or actually is it the number of people that leave the NZQA? Because what does an employer look for? They don't care how many hours it took you to get the NZQA. They want to know, did you pass the NZQA and at what level? So things like that. So I think it's it's tricky um, to know what to measure and to know what's actually making a difference. I guess that's where people like Puck and other experts on impact mm. strategy and measurement come into their own. Can help. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to unpack just a little bit more on this because some of the people here will represent IT businesses which are not charities. And so we've kind of heard a bit about that. So 
John. <laughs> Just thinking, you know, you mentioned when you were started talking, you mentioned employment. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's 200, mm -hmm. 250 people in the region here employed, mm -hmm. that the software and the things that you're working on is helping to alleviate in a, in a direct slash indirect way AML. And yeah. um, can you just unpack for us a little bit more on, I guess, how you view the impact that Jade is having? Yeah, so one of the things that we have done with the AML stuff in particular is um, change our view of what we're trying to achieve to one where we're actually trying to detect crime and make uh, financial transactions safer for society. Mm -hmm. So the objective changes from a thing focused on us, which is put crudely to sell more copies of AML software, mm -hmm. to one where we're actually trying to get the outcomes that are good for society. And obviously our stuff will get dragged along behind that. But if you change the objective slightly, then it changes the way you think, and it changes some of the things you do with the product and mm -hmm. how you sell it. Mm -hmm. um, we have always, I mean, historically, if you look at the growth of the company from the very roots, we are a locally based technology company. Um, we've never really been about the money, we've always been about the technology. <laughs> that that flavour continues on and I think we are proud to be a, a Christchurch technology company and to employ local people mm -hmm. uh, and to take that to the world. Yeah. That's, that's helpful, and I want to flip it now from you guys to some of you, we heard, you know, you raised your hand that you run IT companies. Does any of what John just said resonate with you? Is there examples in your own businesses where you're thinking in this way? Not where I am at currently, yep. but I was um, a number of years at um, a software firm here in Christchurch, and they had a really strong focus and it was actually on an employment contract of I think it was two days per year mm -hmm. fully paid to go do community based work. Mm -hmm. What is everyone's thoughts on that as a way to drive good but from a different angle? What do you guys yeah, want to say? Yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> got, I've got some interesting views on that. These are my personal views um, around, yeah, co corporate social responsibility and mm -hmm. this shift to <coughs> how we conceive of business and the role of business, right? So I think it's it's really awesome that that a lot of businesses have those programs as a way to um, to create um, good in from that framework and it's it's an outlay of resources and it's good for many reasons for businesses because it's also good for retention of employees who feel fulfilled from being able to participate in those types of programs and the offering that they have um, and important in terms of I guess there's a concept of like your social license to operate and, and what communities do you work in and, and are you are you giving back to them? Um, it's interesting like the difference between volunteering and skilled volunteering, I think, like from a perspective of an organization, um, that there's so many different things that would be that's really helpful to have support with from business perspectives and I guess a lot of like the volunteering programs it's you can go out and you can paint fences or you can you build community gardens and there's lots of different things you can go out and do but what like when you're talking from impact and and what you're creating and how you're looking at it for me it's what is the most effective way to generate that and I think it's it's one of the these things it's, it's quite attention particularly with technology and charity is that people want to give money and time to things that really pull heartstrings and tech doesn't tend to have that same level of heartstring story itself, right? It's like we're a ticketing company so you can 
donate to a ticketing company that's driving this amazing impact and then you hear the stories from our charity partners about the impact that that creates and it's, it's beautiful and really compelling. But us ourselves, it's, it's less, um, it doesn't pull on the heartstrings in the same way. Um, but yeah, I think those programs are really great, but allocating resources like access to the support from legal, like if you if you outsourced a day, for example, of legal support or a day of accounting support or IT support, like those skilled programs, I think are much more useful for organisations that actually need help because that's the kind of money that we don't have to spend, um, and but that's the resources that we need. Yeah, um, so it, it depends on what what that looks like. I agree entirely about the skill need. I also sit on a, a charitable board here in Christchurch, and mm. we do the you know do the, the old street appeal once a year, and it's great to have volunteers for that. But it's the accounting, it's the legal, it's mm. the strategic. It's sometimes it's something come clean the loose sort of thing. Mm. You know that's all part of what we need and what we would benefit more from our society's point of view. Mm. Mm. The thing I find fascinating is for each of our organisations that we represent, because we're all I've come from somewhere today. Where is, where is the CSR policy, <coughs> if there is one? Is it in the bottom drawer? And was it last looked at five years ago? Mm -hmm. yeah. And the challenge I think that we're being presented with here is actually thinking strategically about your business and what you do. Is there any way that you could tweak things to start saying, actually, we do do good. We should measure it. We should think about it. You know, the same way that the software is being used to track anti-money laundering, you know, so in your own context, in your own business, what shape, <coughs> what shape might this take after this session to go back and think about, yeah, actually we could do better about how we report to our shareholders, our stakeholders, and what is it that we actually do? Because in my view, that's, you know, <coughs> four young children, I want them to grow up in a world where they'll go and work and the businesses will have purpose at the core of what they're doing. It won't just be about how much returns are going to the shareholders. Um, so I think that's for me. That's the key thing. It's it's like the sausage sizzle equivalent. Mm. You know, it's this bolt on, but it's really easy to lose it. You have to bake it in, and that, that's I'd argue what you're doing. Like every day, every ticket you sell, it's making impact, and that's the challenge I'd put out there to every business. Is instead of doing good as an aside, you know, connect to the, what, what what is it the volunteering that you go and do. Typically, people that go and volunteer, they love the day that they volunteer. There's something in that. You know? So what is it about the volunteering that you're doing? And how do you imagine if you could bring that sense of purpose and you know, fulfillment into every day at work? And that's what I'm trying to do, is help organizations work out that just focusing on making money, typically for old white dudes in suits, isn't very fulfilling. There's some um, recent research from a good mate of mine, Zach Mercurio, who does, uh, he's just finished his PhD in organizational purpose. And if you have no fulfillment in work, you're, only 1% of humans who have no fulfillment at work will have fulfillment in life total. And yet, most people don't have that fulfillment at work. <laughs> and we, we're in New Zealand with really high suicide rates for our teens and really high suicide rates for guys our age. Mm. You know, just mm. think about that. <laughs> Dave? Um, I'm interested to hear this, that the two days per, per year, I mean, it's like 1% of time. Not if my calculations are correct, which is which is seems like a very small amount of contribution. If if the kind of implication is that what you're doing the rest of the time isn't good for society, mm -hmm. my concern is that I mean I I left the business world because actually I got frustrated with it. I found that it was a pointless exercise. It didn't make me feel good, <coughs> and um, I chose the role that I have now. I was very lucky to have the opportunity. To have 
upfront about that, but um, because I feel like every day what I'm doing is contributing to making the world better. Every day, not 1% of my time, 100% of my time. And, um, and I think, I mean, I've been, I think we're, we're all feeling, it, well, I, I hope we're all feeling that, that things are coming to a head in the world at the moment with things like climate change and the fact that we have to completely change the way that our entire society is set up, particularly the business component of it. Um, and recognize how that fits in, and I want to see. I want to see. I mean, I echo what you're saying, Tim. That we should be, we should be setting up our businesses so that the 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 whole ethos and the principles on which those businesses are built are for the betterment of this, of the world and society. And if they're not, then those companies shouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that we need to take a really long, hard look. I'm, I'm reading a book right now by a woman called Kate Raworth, who uh, mm -hmm. she's written Don. Donut Economics, uh, which I encourage everyone to read, because essentially what it says is that everything that we've learned about economics is based on incredibly badly founded assumptions, and that in fact it's almost literally the reason that we're in the position we're in today, that all these things are coming to a head. So it's a way of getting around our existential. She may be. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so she's doing a currently. So I know that there's going to be some more questions, and we'll take maybe one or two more. So be thinking. If you really have a question, <laughs> I want to hear it. Um, but I, it would be remiss of me not to ask about something called benefit corporations, Tim. <laughs> um, so can you, because some people may not be familiar with B Corp and what that is, but I think that's a really interesting positive good <coughs> model that people could consider if they have a business. Yep. Um, can you just give us an overview? 100%. So um, B Corp was founded by um, three guys who used to run a basketball apparel company called And One. And if you've got kids or you're into basketball, apparently it was the number one basketball brand in New Zealand as well as in many countries around the world. Um, they were American-based business and if you've worked for American-based companies or, you, or you've been over there, you get very little... Um, uh, personal, I guess, benefits working for a, a US company. You typically don't get four weeks leave, you don't get <coughs> stat days, you don't get health insurance, da 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 da. So they built this company on the opposite of that. They said, well, look, we should look after our staff, we should interact with our community, we should monitor our environmental footprint, we should be transparent around who owns the company and where all the money goes. And they did that, and it was a hugely successful business. And they wanted to scale it, and the uh, venture capital people came in and said, well, this is great, but your business is really unprofitable, you need to strip out all this stuff because you're not going to get any money. So they stripped it all out, they raised the money, and then the company kind of didn't go so well. And so they all exited and thought, well, we should go and do this again. And then they had a, maybe over a few beers, they were like, well, what if instead of creating just one more business, we created a movement of businesses that behaved like we were doing? So that was the birth of B Corp. So B Corporations are um, third-party verified to be operating at high levels of transparency and accountability around their social and environmental footprint. And you're measured on five pillars. So your governance structure, so who, who owns the business and where does the money go, essentially. How you treat your staff, your uh, social impact, your environmental impact, and then what your business does, which is, I guess, where Dave's at. You know, so if you are a casino, you can't be a B Corp. Um, if you're involved in selling guns, you can't be a B Corp. Um, if you're in some extractive industries, you can't be a B Corp. Because they basically said, you could be the best gun company in the world, but fundamentally what you do just isn't cool, so we don't really <laughs> want you in, in our community. So it's a really, really cool, interesting model. So um, it's for for-profit businesses, generally. Um, 
I might be able to say something about that in a minute, maybe not. Um, so examples include Patagonia, um, Ben & Jerry's, uh, All Birds or a Bee Call, and those sort of big ones that most people have heard. And so it, it essentially gives you the mandate as the CEO or, or as a board of a company to report on more than just financial. So if you're the CEO of a company in the USA, each quarter your only job that you've been hired by the board to do is earn more money than the quarter before. And if your business has been going for 50 years, it's pretty hard to do that without cutting corners or cutting costs or you know, making sure that someone else isn't getting a fair go. Whereas if you certify as a B Corps, it basically gives you the mandate to turn around your board and say, look, no, we intend to make a profit, but we will not do it at the expense of the five pillars that we're certified against. So right now, I, it, I don't think it's the silver bullet. I don't think it's going to change everything. But right now, it's getting enough big businesses to focus on more than just making money. And the ones that are doing that are outperforming their peers in the market. Like, oh, there's not a single piece of evidence to show that by doing good, you do worse as a business. Mm. So, in fact, it's the opposite. It's hundred percent the opposite, and this is from such you know left-wing groups as KPMG and Deloitte and uh, <laughs> Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, all these reports. And there's not a single report that says that if you do this, you're going to do worse off as a business. Mm. So, so it's an interesting model to consider. <coughs> if you haven't done it, go to the B Corp website um, because you can actually assess yourself. It's free free to do the assessment. Yeah. You only pay if you actually want to certify. Yeah. So that's just an and interesting lens to put over your business and just look at it. I, I, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. And you, <laughs> it's like a multi-choice. So you sort of choose which your answer would be and then you get ranked with points and then the points add up and then you either are or you're not. And then you can improve, right? You yep. can develop policies yep. and improve. So it's fascinating because it's not something <coughs> that's come from the government. It's really from industry led, um, but I think it's a fascinating thing to look into. Any question? Yeah, yeah. I'll ask a question. I mean, it's really impressive. You're all working in organizations and working to do good. Um, like Dave was saying, too, we're also at a point where you know, there are like planetary limits being reached for <laughs> um, uh, infinite growth in the old business model. So I was just wondering when you looked around at the rest of the world, the rest of the business models, where were the, where's the most opportunity for change? Or what are the most egregious places you noticed that people, organizations were just not organized, were organized to do bad, but we should be changing to do good? Yeah, I think that's what excites a lot of the people in, in our business around what we're doing um, in a more holistic way. What we're proving is that as a business, you can be set up to be really competitive. And the, the word systems change, I think, it's, it's, it gets used and thrown around a lot and struggling to conceptualize what, what a better word to describe it is. But it's, it's this idea of you, you engineer the way the business works and you change the system of ticketing to say, okay, well, we can actually harness this pipeline of income that all the other businesses in this industry do and make that an output that drives good. And so this whole this whole idea, I guess, of where, where are these egregious points, um, it's the idea of proving that business can, by design, achieve good. It, do, it doesn't have to be this idea that you're a business and you've got some responsibilities or this, this moral sense of obligation to give back. And I guess this is a little bit of this discussion around what's happening in the world right now and, what is growth and what is acceptable growth and what are the parameters of that and this whole framework of regenerative economics it's what do you take out of 
the industry or the environment they're operating in and what do you give back? Because if you just take and are distributing back to private shareholders exclusively, then that's a very linear way of how your business operates. But it's also a linear way to frame growth and to frame success, right? Because then it's the idea that quarter on quarter, you're constantly growing sales and you're constantly reaching this point of exponential growth and where does it stop? Um, but where do you see the most room, room for improvement outside of your own organization, say over the next 10 years? Yeah, well, I, I think it's interesting. I think like this idea that within each organization you can operate as like these little pockets, like, like you say, we're in the ticketing industry, so we're one example of this. So I think what could be what is really exciting and interesting is to say, okay, well, let's, there's quite a few organizations doing these kinds of things within their own industries and they're in these wee pockets of, of what they're doing. What would that look like if the whole system of how we did business changed? What if, it, what if it totally changed to say, this is what a business actually does? It, it performs this, you know, it creates employment, it creates outcomes. It, money that employees make or that come through that funnel gets put into local communities because that's how the system of what happens with people's income works. But what if the system of what a business actually was and how it, how it works and the impact it creates and what it's set up to do changed? So I guess, like for me, every industry it could could be that. Um, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity, particularly in in climate change. I think one of the interesting things about Kate Rowe's um, research around what what are the parameters of that. And she had this beautiful quote that I really loved around the fact that we have these parameters is an opportunity for innovation, right? If you like, you can be really innovative when you have the square that you're operating <coughs> in. But you can't go outside those boundaries. We now know what our planetary boundaries are we're now in a place where we're scrambling to reduce the impact of what is now inevitable. Um, and so that parameter creates this box for really cool innovation. And that's what we've done within the ticketing industry. We've said, okay, how does the industry work? What can we do within that? Let's innovate with a financial model, with a business case, and the way that we've designed that. And you can do that across so many different industries. Um, so I think there's, some, there's really exciting cases for what that looks like, and like any system, once you change a few of the ways of operating, um, what could happen then next? It's really hard to conceptualize what that could potentially look like, but I think that's where it's really exciting. I think that's real interesting is like the organizations we're talking about here, because I lived in Tokyo for five years and I worked for a company that had 45,000 employees and 155 offices. So it's that scale, you know, it's just huge, absolutely. There were 5,000 people in the building that I worked in and they all worked for the same company. So if you could um, tweak some of those sorts of organizations to actually think about their procurement policies and where do they source their supplies and who are they trading with and who do they do business with, like, yeah. it would have such a massive, massive change could, could result. That's where I kind of yeah. see it. There's um, quite a, a cool book called <coughs> Control-Alt-Delete. And it's like a black comedy about robots taking over the world and the, and the two two computers are sitting there talking to each other and they're watching a group of humans watching like a big brother equivalent and one computer says to the other these are they're idiots they don't deserve to run this place anymore <laughs> and maybe that's where AI, you know ai and, and the robots are going to do the thing they're going to go actually <laughs> you guys like you've had however many millions of years to try and work this stuff out you haven't done it you know, because who, who has the moral authority to go, your business doesn't get to exist? I mean, I agree, we have to get to a point where clearly, on the balance of judgment, your business does more harm than good. But who, who runs that council? Who gets to mandate that? And I think 
the, the danger is we spend the next 50 years having that argument about who gets, you know, should, should Donald Trump make that decision? Well, he's, We're in the, the idiocracy you know, now. Yeah, the idiocracy. <laughs> you know? Who've seen that film. So, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a real interesting need for, I mean, I've got a degree in medieval history, and I think we need more humanities, more philosophy mm. bouncing around in the tech world to actually what, what is good and yeah. what, what will be good. Well, that's an interesting question. We've said this session is tech for good. What is good? Right? Can, can I just point out that one of the um, things that we're planning to do with our, our, our online um, course coursework is create opportunities for people who have engaged in very specialized fields of study that, to the exclusion in many cases, of the liberal arts like uh, histories and, and um, philosophy and psychology and things like that, uh, they give them an opportunity to fill in this, the gaps that they might have perceived as a result of living in the real world but with a very specialized background um, so that's one of the yeah, beacons of hope hopefully and <laughs> mm, um, Stephen I like what you're saying about obviously if you're a big company you're just making a small impact in that company you can create a I guess a chain of effect that can make the world a better place for example mm -hmm. but I'm curious to hear about is obviously what do you think the challenges obviously with maybe Jay for example and yourself as peer reviewed um, what would be the challenges in you know, making those change for good because obviously you're accountable for mm -hmm. many other stakeholders, mm -hmm. your employees and such. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 well, one of my, my personal views is that to a large extent, we have an existing mechanism in the market that will drive the behaviour we want if we set the parameters correctly. And, you know, economics and money is all just about scorecards and signals and stores of value and making asynchronous transactions. But if we, for example, beefed up the emissions trading scheme, if we uh, changed regulations so that cars and car owners paid the true costs of what they're imposing on society, then that would drive a change in behaviour almost overnight and almost automatically without regulation. So, so you're talking about a regulatory intervention helping to drive this, it's not something that can just be driven well, I by think the organisations Yeah, the, the organisations can do it. And if you take a simple example, you know, that if someone goes into the supermarket to buy some pork, at the moment they have a choice between New Zealand pork, which is moving to cage-free and, and, you know, generally humanely raised and stuff, and you have a lot of imported pork, which is much, much cheaper and raised in who knows what conditions. And if you, if you let, for example, those sort of cheap imports come over the border without any constraint on what the cost is to society, then people find it hard to make the right decision. And in the same way, companies find it hard to make the right decision if the economic signals are skewed. And there's always going to be someone that does it the cheap way and then only cuts you in the market. So even if you, as a company, do the right thing and go to a, 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 an ethical supplier who's gonna, who may be more expensive, then you'll be undercut by someone that isn't using an ethical supplier. If we put in place a framework where the cost to society is reflected in the inputs to the company that's purchasing the services or products, then the, then the thing will sort itself out. And, and it just infuriates me that we have fuel that's so cheap here, and so that we're just encouraging people to, to burn fuel ridiculous. And we regard cheap fuel as a good thing. Yeah, there's celebrations in the paper when Wellington gets <laughs> cut price petrol, you know. And and that's 
not just climate change, but that's you know killing 400 people a year on the roads because people don't want to slow down on, on undivided roads. If we were crashing two or three Boeing 737s a year, which is the equivalent, uh, I'm sure people would want some sort of regulation. Or if bad water was killing 400 people a year, there'd be an outcry. Mm. Um, and the mechanisms are there. We, we have mechanisms to control markets and to send signals. Mm. I think another thing. Like the uh, same about the um, situation in the Eden with the recycling company and the disability uh, government holding down. Do you know? Oh, the, the Invercargill one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Southland Stability, isn't it? It's called mm. Southland Stability Enterprises. People have got contract at the moment, providing a you know quite a broad service to all of other people in the community. Mm. And but that looks like they might get pushed out because there's a cheaper contract somewhere else. Mm. I think you're right. It's that true cost. If I, you know, the richest man in the world, you know, the richest man in the world. Well, to amass that amount of money, what social and environmental damage has that organisation caused? Because they're not a B Corp. I don't. I don't know that they've. <laughs> Published, yeah, know. you know, <laughs> impact reports on the, on the, you know, yes, they create jobs, but they're typically high-paid jobs for highly skilled people. But you know, we, well, I guess we know what's been documented by some of the activities of Apple, where they outsource their manufacturing and and you know, deaths and injuries in the, in their factories. So again, it's like it's that if business, and I guess this is what B Corp is trying to get people to do is look at the true accounting of your business. You know, what are you doing in these areas, and just recognise. And I think we've had this. It comes down, we're all humans, it's humans that work in businesses, and yet we've had this real separation of this logic from the heart. But actually, we're, we are heart-driven. You know, the, the two biggest decisions you're going to make in your life are typically your partner and your house. Well, not many people create a spreadsheet around, well, should I go out with this person? You know, you just go, oh, I quite like that person, and I don't really know why. Yet in business, unless it's rational and it all stacks up and there's an economic argument for it, you don't do it. And I think that's a big, but, but you're not actually doing the true accounting behind the scenes to actually see what that, that number is. So we're, we're all just living in a bit of a ruse. So with that situation in, in Cargill, you know, that's the council by the ratepayers that are making the purchasing decision. So they're not really acting with their heart, which is really, that's the source of the problem, isn't it? Yep. Mm. So that's sort of a way yep. of getting there. <laughs> no, no, I think you had something to say. <coughs> Dave, you maybe had something to say. I think, I think there's also maybe some hope that being transparent and, and being a B Corp, for example, um, and being very public about that could work as, as a competitive advantage as well. There's public perception and public um, thinking changes. Um, you'll, you'll probably start seeing more companies moving in that direction because it actually helps them be more profitable mm -hmm. and, be, and be a better business. I feel, I feel like we're, we're, we're in a position at the moment where we're seeing increased suspicion among the populace about what we see in the media and not being able to trust much of anything at the moment. And I think um, the only thing we can do in that situation is to be radically transparent. Mm -hmm. And if you're not radically transparent, then that <coughs> should be a, a cause for great suspicion and skepticism. And what we need to do is we need to nurture the skeptical uh, in, in all of us, and then especially in our upcoming generations. Mm. And essentially, if an organization isn't transparent, we should think that they're doing the wrong thing, mm. basically. Mm. And um, so if people knew exactly what the conditions of the pork, uh, the pork, the pigs that they are eating were raised in and various other things, then, then yeah, they might change behavior. I also think, though, that the, 
the economic arguments for a lot of things are based on increasingly um, suspicious uh, assumptions as well, and we need to reevaluate perhaps some of those. Um, although I do agree with the uh, disincenting things that uh, are not good for the planet. But uh, I think there's a real mix of things that need to work together. Mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing for me, and coming back to your question, safe to, to us, um, is who do we have in this room? Like, there's not that many of us, right? There's like 35 people here. But each one of us have come from a different organization. And the fact that we're here this morning shows that we're at least interested in this. What does good mean? What does tech for good mean? So what will this mean when we go back to organizations? What are ways that we can challenge the way things are done, the way that things are procured, the way that um, staff are treated or other, you know, what it is that we're actually doing as a tech business? Um, for me, that's my response to your question is, we, each one of us as individuals, you know, sometimes people get focused on, I'm not the leader of the organization, I'm not the leader of this entity, but the, the true reality is we're the leader of ourselves, and each one of us has the chance to lead ourselves, whatever anybody else is doing. And so for me, within an organization like this one, which is a law firm, how can I leverage my skills and background and knowledge in a way that hopefully amplifies the stories of other people and hopefully causes them to question and maybe push boundaries in new ways. That's what I really enjoy. Because I, I worked for 11 years for an international law firm. So the biggest deal I did, I think it was $4 billion. So it's like big numbers. But it wasn't very satisfying, because I would call the client at the end and say, hey, what's the next Lamborghini color going to be? You know, like, they're so wealthy. And it wasn't satisfying. So when I came back to New Zealand three years ago, it was this sense what you talked about What's my purpose? How can I actually give back in some way? And so now what I'm doing, I feel it is that being a catalyst to empower people. So, but the, the challenge is for each one of us, what does that mean? What shape does that take for us? That's, that's the challenge. Um, I'd like to wrap up soonish, I think, if that's OK, because I think we've had an amazing discussion. I don't want to sort of keep going all morning. <laughs> um, but did, were there any, you had a question. Maybe we can finish with you. Yeah. <coughs> My career has been a lot in, in government and such like. So uh, the shop floor has a big influence in any business, but it principally those who are in governance are the, are the key people. So what would you offer to us today in terms of the key issues in running a, a sort of a good outcome? From a governance point of view, what are the mm. key governance issues Mm. that you would highlight in an organization. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think um, the, I guess from a governance perspective, the B Corp pillars feed a little bit into this mm. as well, but um, like these trends like around listed companies, the new reporting frameworks on, on what they're reporting and what you're prioritizing. I think from a, from a board perspective, it's about the questions you're asking and the things you're prioritizing. I think one of the biggest challenges um, for organisations around the board table now is sustainability and what does that look like? Not necessarily just sustainability in an environmental sense, but what are the market conditions going to be for your organisation in, in 10 years' time? We're having these discussions around um, regulatory um, like duties from a regulatory perspective to be influencing behavioural shifts in, in business and we've got consumer-led um, this trend 
towards social and ethical procurement and um, future generations being more and more um, discerning with their spending dollar around who they're buying services from. Um, we've got this whole realm of social procurement happening around preferred supplier arrangements for organisations that can report against these benchmarks. So I think from a board table perspective, there's a real important impetus to be prioritising, understanding what the challenges to your organisation are if you're if you're not in that landscape. And then if you're like the boards that I sit on, what, when I'm talking to my board, <coughs> what um, what we're doing in terms of our targets and our sales and our and our financials, it's it's a slightly different conversation, but it still matters, right? It still matters to say, okay, is this sustainable um, for us? It's are we balancing um, our growth? How are we financing? ourselves, how are we um, servicing our customers and those different pillars I guess around our what are we doing for our employees, what are we doing for the environment, our social outcomes, having that as something that you're evaluating at board level the same way that you review your finances, the same way that you review partnerships, correspondence, all the other diligence um, and insurance and, and the hygiene of governance, I would argue that sustainability has got to be a really important part of that now. Anybody else have any thoughts? Just very quickly, um, the best boards that I've had any involvement with have been ones which have had very clearly defined principles on which they're running their organization, and they're very um, rigorous about ensuring that every decision they make adheres to those principles, and all of the ones that I've been involved in have had openness and um, fairness as, a, as key principles. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of, a lot of governance structures don't, don't adhere. They, they adhere to expedience rather than... Uh, principle, which I think I could consider expedience the lack of principle. Um, so sometimes you lose profit, uh, for example, in order to meet your values rather than, uh, and, and that's okay. Um, and the other thing is, um, I, I like to term corporate interests as inequity machines, because if you think about it, that's really what corporations are. Um, and you need to, I think a board needs to constantly um, consider to itself whether they are building an inequity machine or something better. Mm. I'd say, yeah, you know, as B Corp says, measure what matters beyond, beyond profitability. Because if you're, if, if at a governance level you're writing into people's employment contracts that they can go and do two days of volunteering, and that volunteering is helping people essentially who are in your employment. So if you're volunteering in a soup kitchen and that soup kitchen's feeding your shop floor employees, you're doing it wrong. Mm. You know, in bed, make sure that everyone's getting a, a fair go. Um, and be transparent, you know, put, let a worker come and sit in at a board meeting. What goes on in this company? Who owns it? What, if you're having discussions around the future of us on the shop floor, we, we'd maybe like to be aware. And that's, you get a lot of points on the B-Core assessment for having, or, or even a worker elected board, you know, who, who, who's created this board? You're typically a bunch of old men in suits. Why, why are you dictating how my business runs? <laughs> so I think if you, if you don't start doing that, it, you know, the wave is coming. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay, John and Manhattan, last thoughts? John, did you have a uh, I just mentioned that from a governance point of view, I think there's a lot of stuff outside the PNL that needs to be um, considered by the board. And I said they'd go along with the fairness and transparency. Also, I know that, that lately our board spent far more time on things like health and safety, um, diversity, and so forth than they have on financials. Mm. And so that whole extended risk management but also the fairness and diversity stuff is really important. Mm. 
That's great. Well, well, we'll stick around a bit after this, so if you have questions, you can come and talk to whoever is around. Um, but uh, one of the things I wanted to mention is I've been recording this session, so my plan is to put it up on this podcast, and I put a card on your chair. So just to really briefly, I've now done 104 interviews and content that's going up with mainly inspiring or inspirational people doing pushing boundaries in some way. So I've talked with a 10-year-old about what it's like to be 10 and how many of us have forgotten. And I've talked with a 90-year-old nun about when World War II broke out and her memories. You know, So it's a real range, as well as lots of IT people. And actually, three of our panelists I've spoken to. So Tim's been on twice, George's once, and Dave has been on. And the interviews go for about an hour long. So they're not sort of short little uh, tell me, Tim, what is Kilmarnock? You know, it, they're much more, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? I'm trying to tease out the story of a life. So if you're interested, it's just hit 30,000 listens, so it's actually gaining traction now. But it's only because of people like you who probably care a little bit. And um, so feel free to check that out. And yeah, just on behalf of Perry Field, I want to say thank you so much for coming. Um, <clears throat> the main engine behind today's event has been Ian. So do you mind um, standing up and um, all of the, and I want you to tell us a little bit about something that you're involved with from Canterbury Tech right. perspective. Um, so yeah, if you could Sure, yeah. yeah, I'm the executive of Canterbury Tech as well, Ian Wells. So I put a card on your desk, or on your chairs here. And this is the program that we just announced yesterday. It's a mentoring program, and the reason our Canterbury Tech has set that up is because a lot of people say within their careers that having a mentor at some point during their careers has made a big difference. So it's, um, there's a, we're setting this program up as kind of a lightweight way to find a mentor or um, you want you are a mentor and you want to give back to, to other people, other professionals in the community, this is a, a nice way to do it. Um, the way it works is there's a two-week registration period and you can sign up online as a mentor or as a protege and uh, list your experience and um, say a little bit about yourself. And then you've got a, uh, a meeting in June 11th. You have to come to that meeting. And then all the people who said they're going to be mentors and all the people who said they're going to be protégés, we get to meet and chat with each other, meet people face-to-face for -face, so personal contact. And then everybody ranks everybody else who they get and we do a computer match and uh, and then you're you find out who your mentor is and it's, uh, it's nice because it's also limited commitment so it runs for 12 weeks and your commitment on both sides would be about two hours every two weeks and then in september it finishes and you might want to continue on or you may not but it's, it sets a, a limit on what you're volunteering to do it's all volunteer run and this is uh, based on a program that's run out of Wellington. Um, it's run for three times as well, so it's, it's been successful there. And it's, uh, I think we we'll find this going to be helpful to you on one, one side or the other. We're especially looking for mentors, actually, as well. That would be, tend to get more people applying who want to be mentored as opposed to um, wanting to offer their services. But it's, a, it's an easy way to just uh, not much time to get to help somebody else along. That's great, thank you. Um, and like I said, Ian and I, we, it was about two months ago that we were just chatting, oh, wouldn't it be good to do an event for Tech Week? And so this has resulted. But a huge thanks to you, because you 
done a, the bulk of the work of pulling it all together, so I just want to acknowledge you. Um, also, are we able to email out to people after this event? Did we get the emails? Because I think there's some links that we might, like some of you have mentioned <coughs> links, like B Corps, for example, that we could po possibly send out. Um, if we if we can't, maybe if you... If this, cry, if this group can't do it, then nobody can. That's yeah. basically <laughs> 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 The other options, if you're interested, then um, maybe give one of us your details or a business card or something. Because I think it would be good to follow up with some material. Because we've, we've mentioned a bunch of things, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, I wanted to download it. But, um, so I'd be happy to coordinate sending an email out, and, and you each can give me whatever links you want. Mm -hmm. And then we'll just have a little, d -d 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 -d, you know, because um, <coughs> I mentioned two reports. I know you've mentioned B Corps, and today <coughs> I'm sure you've got some things that people would be interested in. And um, so the Rawworth book is uh, worth everybody looking at. Yeah, so we could just do like a bullet point list of some of the key things that came out of it. But so if you're interested, I'm not sure if whether we'll be able to email out everyone. So maybe if you have a business card, just leave it up here if you're interested. If not, that's fine. And um, yeah, I, I, the last thing is I think we should thank our panelists in the usual way. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that episode. It was quite an interesting topic, I thought, and I thought the questions were really insightful and caused us all to think. I know at the end of it, there was a lot of challenges that people had been left with, so I hope you enjoyed it as well. And if you did, consider checking out some of the earlier episodes on the podcast. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>